Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provoc and I'm Cam the Provocateur, feeling metaphysically wrinkle free. <laughs> uh stumbling over his intro there. <laughs> This film's done a number on you, Cam. From the get-go, you're already stumbling over your words. I was going to edit that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you're leaving it in now. Um, but before we get to this week's film, we do have a special guest infiltrating the podcast this week. Uh, we've previously been on his show, Selling Secrets, which you can check out in the show notes below. It is Mr. Josh Gay 007 Oz. Hello, sir. How are you doing? G'day, gentlemen. Good morning. I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on. Yes, I, I was. It's our pleasure, firstly, and it's nice to have you on after our lovely appearance on your show. I mean, I, I uh, was looking at your Instagram earlier, and your pinned tweet is: "Is this Australia's biggest James Bond fan?" Question mark. Yes, I am a James Bond tragic, so don't hold that against me too much. <laughs> well, are you James uh, Australia's biggest James Bond fan? I have to know now. I'd be close to it, I think. Uh, my my fiance puts up with uh, a lot of James Bond uh, annoyances in her life. <laughs> I think would be the best word. But yeah, I am. Um, I'm absolute tragic when it comes to James Bond and spy films in general. So, uh, but yeah, Bond is my first true love, and I will always uh, hold that very dear to my heart. Um, I've been collecting. James Bond memorabilia, books, films since I was in primary school. So it's something that's been with me since I was uh, a wee lad. And uh, yeah, I think I'll uh, continue on until I'm uh, old and decrepit in a, in a nursing home. Well, I have a question for you. Now, much was made of the No Time to Die release date being quite late for Australia versus, you know, the UK and North America. How torturous was that? Uh define torture um I, I, look i i think i'd rather <laughs> sit in a chair with a hole cut out of the bottom and have my balls hit by a rope with a knot in the end than endure that again <laughs> did you manage to avoid spoilers uh unfortunately not i'm an idiot and stayed on instagram during mm. that period and uh, a lovely gentleman decided to post photos of the ending so that was that was a bit of a kick in the guts but I knew what happened, I didn't know how it happened, so it was still a nice surprise going into it the first time, and as soon as the film came out, I was at a midnight screening, so there was no way I was missing it. And did you walk away happy from No Time to Die? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I think it was a uh, it was a bold move, but the film itself I really enjoyed. There's things I definitely would have changed about the story and potentially how they ended it a little bit but overall i really enjoyed it and i've watched the film i saw it in cinemas four times um oh, wow. i've watched it at least six times on blu-ray since as well so yeah no thoroughly enjoyed it are you are you also upset that bond went back to get doo-doo oh i think that was a waste of time it's what cost <laughs> him his life you know going back to get that bunny it was wasn't it yeah the you know kids they'll kill you yeah they certainly will. Now, I mean, speaking of your love of spy movies, I want to talk about your show in a second, but you mentioned you love Bond, but also spy movies. Where does that love come from? What's all your earliest memories of spy films? So 
I've been into spy films, again, since I was a young kid. I think Bond was probably one of the earliest things I got into. And long story short, my dad was in the military. He was in the SAS. So I've had those sort of military special operator cultures ingrained in me since I was very, very young. Um, I actually interviewed dad on the podcast as well, if anyone wants to check that out. He's got a fascinating story in his own right. Um, but yeah, so, you know, Spy Kids, Alex Ryder, those were sort of the ones I was allowed to engage with as, you know, a, a, a child that was in single digits, let alone double digits in age. Um, and then, you know, all the, the PG rated Bond films. So there's maybe a handful of the, uh, the old Roger Moore films and the, I think GoldenEye was PG rated here as well, which completely baffles me because, you know, there's some pretty intense sexual connotations <laughs> in that film, but, um, yeah, it, it's something that I've been a fan of since I was a, a very young kid and, you know, I love Star Wars and sci-fi and all of that, but I think there's something just inherently intriguing about the spy genre that just keeps pulling me back. And if it's a big action film or a, a small scale character thriller, it, I, I love it all. And Talking about your podcast, which I mentioned earlier, Selling Secrets, which we've also appeared on, um, you've had some great guests in the last year. Some of the people that actually have been on our show as well, Calvin Dyson, Dave Zaritsky, Raymond Benson, but you've had uh, quite the uh, cavalcade of guests. Raymond Benson hasn't been on the show, but if he'd like to be, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate. I'm. Oh, yeah, I've hey, been very, very, I know the guy. Lucky. I'll make it happen for you easy perfect we'll make it happen. love it let's there do it go. um but yeah so I, i've had a, a number of incredible guests on as you said david and calvin both incredibly generous for a, a small creator like myself who gets a marginal audience compared to what they do um kim sherwood as well the the author of the latest james bond novel i had the the privilege of and yeah, a nearly an hour long chat with her on the release of her book, uh, Double or Nothing. So it, I've come a long way from just a, a little creator talking about marketing in action films and spy films and branched out a little bit now and absolutely loving every minute of it. I've had to take a, a small hiatus because uh, about three months ago, I welcomed my son into the world. So that's sort of taken priority above everything else, but uh, looking to get back into the, the podcast, kicking it off very strong for 2023 well firstly just from us and all the listeners i'm sure congratulations mm -hmm. thank you on the birth of your son and um just like it for our listeners who haven't maybe heard your show before what's the sort of like the the elevator pitch for it what is it you're looking to do with the show absolutely so selling secrets started off as me talking about the marketing and I guess the advertising that goes into some of our favorite action films and spy genre films, how they're sold by the Hollywood producers. Um, and it's evolved since then. Um, I talk about anything and everything to do with the action and spy genre. So whether that's a, a book review or an interview with a creator, um, it's really just my passion project and love for all things spy movies and action films. And, uh, even books. So yeah, if anyone's a fan of Spy Hards, I'm sure they'll uh, enjoy listening to what I have coming out on Selling Secrets. What would be a good episode for anyone interested in Selling Secrets to listen to? Ooh, 
I, I think probably the, the Kim Sherwood interview is the one that I'm probably the most proud of. I think that's where I, I felt most comfortable in my interviewing skills, and uh, I really got quite a bit of knowledge out of Kim that I may not, you know, the traditional book reviewer may not have got out of her. Um, but if anyone's interested in James Bond uh, and the, the Bond fandom, uh, the interview with David Zaritsky was fantastic as well. We we really delved in not just into the character and why he's a creator in the, I guess, the sartorial side of Bond, but uh, because professionally he works in the advertising industry, we really delved into some of the marketing campaigns and the behind the scenes of the, the Bond franchise as well. So I think probably, yeah, the, the Kim Sherwood interview and the, the David Zaritsky ones, definitely have a listen to those. Well, we'll um we'll put links to both of those episodes in the show notes below, so people can immediately click on those when they finish listening to this episode. But uh, you know, we did bring you in to the Spy Hards family to talk about this week's film. So I guess Cam, the question is, what are we talking about? Yes, we are talking about 2003's The Recruit, starring Colin Farrell and Al Pacino, and directed by No Way Out, Helmer, Roger Donaldson. And, of course, the uh, Pierce Brosnan film, The November Man, as well. That's right, which we have not covered yet, but we will one day off in the future. Mm, we certainly will. Uh, yeah, well, I think we could say, Josh, that we've recruited you for this review. Oh, uh, is anything as it seems, though? Well, I... <laughs> okay, that's the first time that this has been mentioned on this episode, that nothing is as it seems. I want, like, a counter running, because this <laughs> film makes many... Many mentions of that sentence. I want like a little pinging noise for everyone to hear and they can Ding. count it as they go because, yeah, exactly. Th that phrase will come back to haunt us, I can guarantee it. Now, let's pivot over to the letterbox.com synopsis for those who haven't hung out with Al Pacino and Colin Farrell in The Recruit. Trust. Betrayal. Deception. In the CIA, nothing is what it seems. Oh, jeez. A brilliant CIA trainee must prove his worth at the farm, the agency's secret training ground where he learns to watch his back and trust no one. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah it comes yeah, it off more or less. I, I wrote down one of my first notes, and I'm just going to say it because it made me laugh and I just saw it, is Al Pacino had a farm, E-I-I-I. <laughs> C-I-C-I-A <laughs> Why would you ruin it, Cam? That was brilliant as it was. <laughs> this is the kind of comedy you get from Spy Hearts, folks. Slow clap. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I, I'd i never heard of this film. I'd heard of the director. And it's important to mention that actually this week we have an interview with the man himself, Mr. Roger Donaldson, Helmer of this film, No Way Out, The November Man, Dante's Peak, if you've ever heard of it, quite the filmography that man has. That's coming out this Friday, so make sure you tune in for that. It's a great chat. Um, but let's go over to you, Josh. Had you ever heard of The Recruit? I had not. And coming out uh, at the start of 2023, obviously, we also had the uh, Netflix series The Recruit come out with uh, Noah Centino. So whenever I was Googling The Recruit, I had to delve in mm -hmm. about five pages before I could find anything about this film. So uh yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a hidden, would I call it a hidden gem? I'm not sure. I'm sure we'll delve into that. But uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Save <Yeah>. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's hidden. It's just hidden. 
Yeah. <laughs> like all good spies, they're hidden. Right. Or covert, yeah. Yeah, it's a film about the CIA training ground that no one's ever heard of. Of course it's hidden. But Cam, you must know about The Recruit. I do know about The Recruit. I did see this movie, not in theaters. Uh, it was when it, probably early on when it hit video, I probably rented it from Blockbuster or something. This was released in the flurry of Colin Farrell films of 2003, where he had a whole bunch of movies that came out. SWAT, Daredevil, Phone Booth, and The Recruit. So there was this sense early on, there was a movie called Tigerland he was in that was directed by Joel Schumacher. It was a very low-budget kind of military drama. But out of that movie, they were like, Colin Farrell's a star, get used to it. And so they just bombarded people with him in these lead roles without really at that point a whole lot to kind of justify it. And so he kind of struggled through over the course of his early career where no one really knew how to use him. Now we look at Colin Farrell and say he's one of the best actors of his generation. But at this point, there was almost like fatigue out of the gate because people were seeing like four or five movies starring him in a year. Uh, so this was one that I did see, you know, rented it from Blockbuster. And I don't think I thought it was that special. I, I can honestly say I watched this movie... Um, I guess maybe a month or two ago, um, just for research purposes for the interview we did with Roger Donaldson, and I'd forgotten almost all of it, so it just didn't really linger too much in my mind is what I'm saying. It's hidden, Cam. That's the point. Very hidden. Very hidden. Uh, Well, Cam, we're all waiting like baby birds with our beaks open. We need to know, how was this film made? So, Josh kind of uh, clued you in there that you have to kind of dig for anything on The Recruit because of the new TV show called The Recruit, which I ended up doing a little bit of a deep dive to see if that was based in any way off this movie. It is not. Um, <laughs> but uh, in terms of like details, it's not a highly detailed production. Even go to the Wikipedia page. I think there's like two or three lines. Uh, very basic stuff. Um, so it was the product of three writers. Um I'm guessing the initial writer, I couldn't find who the original writer was. I could find who the last writer on the project was, but not the original. So Roger Town seems to probably be the original writer. Uh, he has a very small filmography, actually. He exec produced and co-wrote The Natural, the 1984 Robert Redford baseball film, which is very beloved by many. Uh, it was spoofed in that classic Simpsons episode where Homer has the uh, softball team. And... Um, so out of that, he really just bounced out of the natural and then wrote and, uh, co-wrote and exec produced a TV movie called In the Company of Spies with Tom Berenger. And then he moved into this. And since then, he's only had one other credit, which was the 2011 Rachel Nichols film, A Bird of the Air, which is a romantic comedy drama. Which we all fondly remember. Very fondly. It, it was a toss-up between doing Spy Hards or a minute-by-minute minute recap of that film. Exactly. I'm always fascinated when you see a writer like this, though, who has, you know, four credits. But, like, two of them are pretty recognizable films. Obviously, The Natural is a movie people still watch to this day. And then The Recruit, you know, may not be one on the tip of everyone's tongues, but it's a star vehicle with Al Pacino and Colin Farrell. I, I guess it happens. I mean, you look at... He could have just been one of those guys that's just sort of workshopping scripts and like a script doctor for most of his career and just sort of had a few hits. Mm -hmm, definitely, yeah. That's my guess, yeah. And then the uh, other writer on the film, Kurt Wimmer. We talked about him when we talked about Salt. He was one of the people that 
co-created salt uh which went through a kind of uh, <laughs> a little bit of a tumultuous process who is salt yeah who is salt <laughs> she's she's also hidden <laughs> i will never forgive that film and also the funny review that we did of it because i then learned about the salt 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 <laughs> in the soundtrack that uh-huh. i now cannot unhear yeah thank you for <laughs> ruining that film for me guys they beat the Bond theme. They Someone finally did it. <laughs> John Barry, who's that? We need salt. <laughs> yeah. So Kurt Wimmer uh, is probably best known as the writer-director of Equilibrium and Ultraviolet. He also more recently did a remake of Children of the Corn. Uh, he got his start in the early 90s, uh, and he just did a lot of studio films, just writing uh, those films. And he kicked it off with a 1992 movie called Double Trouble, which, as I said in the salt episode if you are not googling double trouble 1992 there is a hole in your life that will be filled by just seeing images of double trouble it's a movie i need to watch but it looks absolutely incredible and then since then he's done things like sphere thomas crown affair remake and this movie was his follow-up to equilibrium um now in terms of the timeline of when he's writing versus directing i don't know but in terms of release this movie came out after equilibrium I, I had to Google, and I think I Googled Double Trouble last time you mentioned Double Trouble. Uh, you did. But since that point, the the twins that are the sort of the double of Double Trouble, uh, Peter Paul and David Paul, uh, have gone on to a slight amount of fame because their other film, The Barbarians, was featured on Red Letter Media's Best of the Worst uh, in a recent video. I love a bit of Red Letter Media here. And uh, yeah, they're now going through a bit of a, a, a Double Trouble renaissance. <laughs> I had never heard of the Barbarian Brothers before we did, you know, Spy Hard's podcast. And I'm very thankful that that may be the greatest gift this podcast has given me. Uh, are we the true Barbarian Brothers now? Are we the Double Trouble? Yeah, I think we are. Well, no. We're not as jacked as they are. Not yet. Not with that attitude. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a really funny video of them doing a rap on a Japanese TV show with Richard Keel. Oh, my God. And he's rapping, too. Well, uh, people, jump on our social media. Scott is going to be tweeting out those links probably daily. Yeah. (laughs) It's all I've got anymore. (laughs) (laughs) The final writer on this movie uh, was Mitch Glazer, who got his start. He did a 1979 cult film called uh, Mr. Mike's Mondo Video, which was sort of like a comedy compilation film. Um, I believe Dan Aykroyd was in that early in his career. And then he just went on and did a whole bunch of studio stuff. He did Scrooged. Uh, he co-wrote Scrooged. Um, he worked on the Great Expectations remake that Alfonso Cuaron did. And then he basically jumped from that movie into The Recruit. And since then, again, kind of like Ro- uh, Roger Town, kind of a scattered sort of minimal filmography. But he did like the uh, Megan Fox movie Passion Play. And most recently, the I think it was Netflix special, A Very Murray Christmas from uh, 2015. Uh, can't say I watched that. Yeah, it was a Sofia Coppola-directed uh, Bill Murray Christmas special. Right, okay. I'm intrigued. I'm sure, I'm sure listeners will be running <laughs> to watch that now. <laughs> exactly, yeah. After, after Double Trouble. <laughs> and so this movie, coming out of these screenplays and these rewrites, it was going to be called The Farm. And that was the title that was basically shopped out, that the cast signed on for and the director... So that's the title we're going to go with. It's kind of like uh, when we talked about Bad Company, how that was called Toolshed, until pretty 
close to the release. And also American Made also was going to be called Mina. So we've had kind of a streak of spy films that had one title through almost all of their production. And then by the time they hit release, had different titles. I'm trying to think of any other that we've covered in our past that were named something and it was changed. Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. Tomorrow Never Dies, yeah. Um, Operation Crossbow, they removed the operation part and just called it Crossbow in some places. Yeah. I, I think uh, Tomorrow Never Dies slash Lies, I think it was, is probably the best answer to yeah. that question. It was Definitely. Lies, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, so Al Pacino and Colin Farrell signed on um, before there was a director on this one. Um, Al Pacino was crucial to getting Farrell. Farrell only signed on once Al Pacino had agreed to star in this movie. And I found a quote from Al Pacino from the press tour about what drew him to the material. This is the answer. (laughs) This is the answer a man who's been doing press for hours, if not days on end, gives. And I quote. I thought it was an interesting script. It kept unfolding, and it was always a surprise whenever something happened. You couldn't call what was going to happen next. It was interesting, and I hope that comes across in the movie. It keeps you guessing. <laughs> I could just see him answering that whilst like smoking a cigarette and like looking off away from the the review, like the interviewer, like n- not paying attention, just like basically off, just like a, a program script in his head. He says the same thing like four times. <laughs> so does the film. Okay, fair enough, yeah. And so they hired a director, uh, or at least the director finalized their deal after the cast was assembled. And that director was James Foley, who uh, is not the director, of course, on the movie, but James Foley was pretty well known, got his start with a 1984 film with Aidan Quinn and Daryl Hannah called Reckless. And he went on to do a lot of the classic Madonna music videos. Uh, He did some, like an episode of Twin Peaks, but he got his like kind of big, industry coming out party for the movie Glengarry Glen Ross, which was a very acclaimed drama um, that, you know, Alec Baldwin, Jack Lemmon, a lot of the big male stars of that era, very intense drama, great movie. And off of that, he kind of just became more of a studio guy. He did stuff like Fear, The Chamber, um, The Corrupter, and he was signed to do this movie and left at a certain point and wound up doing instead the 2003 film Confidence, which was like a con man movie with uh, Dustin Hoffman. I could not find the reasons he left this project. So I'm not sure if it was a, I don't know, unhappiness with the screenplay or what. I have no idea. But either way, James Foley left. He was probably baffled by the screenplay. Entirely possible. And he's since gone on to do like some really notable prestige TV. He did a lot of episodes of House of Cards, for example. Uh, but his last two credits are interesting. He did the uh, sequels to the Fifty Shades of Grey franchise. Why is that interesting, Cam? It's a little interesting that you kind of go from Glengarry Glen Ross to uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I was, I was trying to do like an always be closing Fifty Shades of Grey joke, <laughs> but I, I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I was about to say, Glengarry Glen Ross is the film that if you've ever worked in the sales industry, that's the film they say, go and watch that. They show you that day one. I worked sales for like 10 years. It's uh, it's soul-destroying work. Most Well, for me it was anyway. But uh, yeah, that is that is the mentality in that film, especially the scene there with the always be closing. So when they show you that movie when you're in sales, are they basically saying to emulate that? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Be, be Alec Baldwin. Don't be the guys really? at the desk who don't get the donuts or the cookies or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Get those steak knives. Yeah, exactly. 
Wow, hardcore. Uh, so, uh, as we've said, Roger Donaldson came on and replaced James Foley um, just before production. And Roger Donaldson, we talked about, about him in the past with No Way Out. You can go back to that episode to hear more about sort of his background. But he was Australian-born. And uh, this was his follow-up to 13 Days, the Kevin Costner uh, sort of JFK docudrama thriller. I've, I've got it. A, B, C. Al Pacino, Bridget Moynihan, Colin Farrell. Wow. Just just end the podcast there. We've peaked, everyone. We've peaked. <laughs> so this movie was filmed mostly in Toronto, but they did film on a couple locations in Washington. Uh, and the title was changed, as I said, just before release because they realized the farm didn't really sell the thriller aspect. I think kind of the same reasons in some ways Toolshed was changed as well, where they were like, this doesn't sound like necessarily a thriller. So that was the reasoning. Well, some hack probably would have done the Al Pacino had a farm EIEIO thing. Probably. In in their review. And they just wanted to avoid it. Yeah, uh, I, sure. Exactly. Too many jokes that could be written to those reviews, right? Yeah. Yeah. The recruit. Ah, it's, it's generic, like bad company, really. It's just a generic title that you can go, I, I guess that's like a thriller. It's true. It's generic, but at the same time, can you name another movie called The Recruit? No? I can, can name really a Netflix of. series named The Recruit. <laughs> <laughs> it took a while, though. It took a while for that to happen. Almost 20 years. So the budget for this movie was $46 million. Domestically, it did 52.8. International, 48.4. For a worldwide total of 101.2 which is actually more successful than I realized. At the mm. time, I think it was kind of seen as a eh kind of performer. But when you kind of see that number, you're like, well, look, no one got rich off this, but it broke even for sure and made it probably a little bit of extra. And this is what? What, what year was this? 2003. Three. So this is like peak DVD release time. Home media is the thing. So I bet it made a ton of money on home video. I can almost guarantee that. Yeah, I'm sure actually a lot of those Colin Farrell movies of the early 2000s probably made a lot of bank on DVD. I know I bought Daredevil in two different versions. I definitely had SWAT. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. You poor, poor man. I, <laughs> hey, I, I have four brothers. It was a very you know testosterone-filled household, so things like SWAT were the, the go-to. And Daredevil, they put that out, you know, the theatrical, and then later they put out the director's cut that was half an hour longer. How could I live a life without experiencing the Daredevil director's cut? Uh, how could you? How could you, Cam? I know, right? We'll never know. That's right. So this movie landed at number 55 for the worldwide box office for that year between Just Married, the Ashton Kutcher, Brittany Murphy film, and Once Upon a Time in Mexico, directed by Robert Rodriguez. A better film? Much better film, yeah. Yeah, and then the top three for the year. Number one was Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Number two was Finding Nemo. And number three was The Matrix Reloaded. And I also looked up the placements of the other Colin Farrell films this year. Because I thought that would be fun to include. Wait, so wait, wait. Got... We have to do like a higher or lower thing. So just name the next okay. film. We'll see if it was higher or lower. Okay, I'll, I'll name them out of order then. So we okay. can guess. It'll sure. be confusing for the listener, but we'll make it clear. <laughs> so this movie... The Recruit, as I said, number 55. Okay, so that's what you're working with. Mm -hmm. So let's go with Phone Booth. Did Phone Booth do better or worse? Better, I would say. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I'd say better because it's such a small-scale film. Okay, yeah. yeah. It actually landed two spots below at number 57. 
Oh, right. Okay. That it's just hmm. I I hold that film in higher esteem. But then again, the recruit 55, 55th for the year is not actually a bad place to be. No, because I don't think anyone looks at um, you know, just married or once upon a time in Mexico and goes, boy, those were flops. Yeah. They were like solid earners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what's next? Okay, let's go with Daredevil. It's that's got to be higher, sure. Oh yeah, like, that's surely. Like, okay, do you have a rough placement? Top thirty. Okay, fair enough. It was number twenty-nine, so you landed right within it. Boom! So I'll take that. I'll take that. What about SWAT? Ah, uh, Josh, you take the lead on this one. See, SWAT, I think, is one of those films that definitely did better on home release than it did in cinemas. But it's got a name like SWAT. And I know Americans love their cop movies, so I'm going to say SWAT placed higher. See, I disagree. I think it's lower. Okay. SWAT was actually the highest ranking Colin Farrell movie of 2003, landing at number 22, higher than even Daredevil. Wow. That's shocking, actually. You, I mean, times I, have changed. Yeah, I think Daredevil and like being in a Marvel property, especially when around the time of like the Fantastic Four films, X Men films, like they Marvel had some heft. Yeah, I mean, this was that era where like Spider Man had been huge, Incredible Hulk, or sorry, Hulk, I should say, the Ang Lee Hulk, still did well, even though kind of no one liked it really at the time. Uh, it's had a little bit of a reappraisal over the years, but at the time, people didn't really care for it. Still, a massive hit. So there was an appetite for those movies, but even still, there was more of an appetite for SWAT. And lastly, Veronica Guerin, which stars Kate Blanchett. This was a prestige drama. This definitely placed higher. Oh, that's a film. Yeah. A prestige like I think our definitions of higher though. I'm thinking like past sixty. Are are you saying the same, Josh, or are you saying like in the top twenty? Oh yeah, no, I'm saying I'm saying that um, the recruit placed much higher than the Kate Blanchett uh, Oscar bait film. Okay, yeah, we're both saying it's in like the low, like the uh, you know between sixty to hundred, maybe or something like that. Yeah, you can go a little lower than that, Scott. It was oh. number one hundred ninety-five for the year. Ah. So there you have it. <laughs> Colin Farrell was a busy boy that year. He was very busy, uh, and <laughs> he was nominated for one award. For this year, uh, this movie didn't have any Oscars or anything like that. There was no real awards recognition for the recruit. But Outrageous! Col- <laughs> but Colin Farrell was nominated by the Teen Choice Awards for Breakout Male Actor. I mean, given the number of films he was in, that's not a surprise. And he- this movie was lumped in with Daredevil and Phone Booth with the nomination there. But he lost ultimately to Eminem for 8 Mile. How did that work out? Well... Can you imagine? Can you imagine the banshees of Inisherin with Eminem? <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> I want to see that now. I'd watch it. What about Eminem as the Penguin in the Batman? <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, it's time to strap ourselves in for a sexy lie detector test <laughs> and talk all about the recruit. Josh, you're our guest. You're up first. What did you think of the recruit? The one thing I took away from this film was Dutch angles, Dutch angles, Dutch <laughs> angles, and nothing was as it seems. That, that That's that's my elevator pitch. Um, look, uh, as a film, I don't think it's a film that would be made in 2023 anymore. I think it's a film that would probably be made into a TV series. 
And I think if it was made into a TV series, it would probably fare better on a narrative angle. I think it, a lot of it felt incredibly rushed in terms of the plotting and the characterizations. Um, interesting post 9-11 film as well. They do mention you know the white men falling asleep at the wheel uh, when the world needed them the most. Um, would I watch it again? Probably not. Um, yeah, I won't remember it in T minus two days, probably. <laughs> it, it, it was passable. Let's put it that way. It'll be hidden in your brain. Yeah. I, I, I can definitely uh, vibe with some of what you said. There. I think I'll go in next because Cam, you sort of did see it before. So you can go last on this one. Yeah. I, d I agree with basically everything you said there, Josh. I think a TV show version of this would actually serve the story better. And I know the Netflix special is not the TV show of this film. Um, I just found it to be messy. Hmm. I liked some of what it was doing, but I think the script uh, made it hard to stick the landing. Like they didn't know how to finish it, so they just, in the third act, just completely got rid of the only fascinating thing, which for me was the farm and how you produce spies. Having them out in the field was just uh, pedestrian for me, really. Um, and it, I think it just really lost energy as it went along, and I think it's a real shame because the performances, for the most part, are quite good. I think Colin Farrell is charismatic as heck in this mm -hmm. film. He really holds you together throughout the whole piece. And Al Pacino is doing his, like, noughties, Jack and Jill, Dunkachino, just turn up and just scream for no reason whatsoever. But that still works. It's Al effing Pacino. Yeah, I thought I thought of like movies like Eighty Eight Minutes and also um, Righteous Kill when I was watching this. This was that era where like Al Pacino just did a lot of these kind of, you know, pot boiler kind of thrillers and action movies. Well, Jack and Jill is not a that one's thriller not. or an action. No, it's 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 something else. Don't watch that psychological drama. <laughs> yes, <laughs> watch that after Double Trouble. I should say. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a double bill right there. Um, yeah, I, I can't say I hated it. I can't say I liked it. It's very middle of the road. And I think much like Josh says, I think it will disappear from my brain fairly quickly after I've watched it. Yeah, well, okay. So like very often, Scott, we'll tackle a movie where that's one of the things we'll say is I know that I'm going to forget about this movie. Uh, something like the 355, for example, where it's like, oh, I know I'm going to forget this one. The but what? That's always something you. <laughs> it's always something you say, but you don't actually know that that's the case. Now, I can say that is the case for The Recruit because I watched this two months ago and as I was sitting there taking notes last night, I was like, I don't remember this at all. <laughs> and there was multiple parts in the second half of the movie where I was just like, oh, I had completely forgotten about all of this. And so, like, I actually think there's a kernel of actually a very entertaining movie here, which mm -hmm. is the farm concept. I think, honestly, that first hour or 45 minutes or whatever it is of Colin Farrell being recruited and being sent to this CIA farm. And I don't know, like the filmmakers say they were really going for accuracy. I have questions about that. Uh, the farm seems maybe a little crazier than I would expect, but who knows? I don't know what the CIA is up to, uh, although they may be tapping me, so they know what's uh, what I'm up to, but nonetheless. Um, but all of that stuff, I actually really enjoyed because it's not something I've seen a billion times. Um, but once it wound up being Colin Farrell kind of, I don't know, being recruited by Al Pacino to engage in a lot of espionage that's very murky and confusing, I find 
I just have real trouble paying attention to this movie. It really just kept losing me. And I think a big part of the problem is when you keep saying nothing is as it seems, nothing is as it seems, like what is what is my investment in what he is doing? So like random example, you know, Bridget Moynihan's character is going to go smuggle a chip out. Colin Farrell's going to go pursue her. To what end? I, I'm being told over and over again that nothing is what it seems. So it's like... I have nothing driving me through the movie. And I've seen movies like this. You think of like uh, The Game, uh, the David Fincher movie with Michael Douglas, where kind of a similar concept where you know, it's a rich guy who is thrown into a game where anything could happen at any time. But like there is a really consistent through line carrying you through with suspense and set pieces. You are invested and you understand kind of the logistics of every situation he finds himself in. Whereas here, I didn't really understand the logistics of anything that Colin Farrell was doing. And even at the end, when Al Pacino was giving a big speech explaining everything, I still didn't understand how all this worked. I don't think I understood half of what Al Pacino was saying when he gave that big speech. It was just <laughs> screaming. <laughs> it's true. Do you think he improved some of that? Oh, God, yeah. Absolutely. And, and you don't really question it. I imagine Roger's going, yeah, 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 we got it. Uh, cut, <laughs> I guess. Um, I have to, I mean, I'll, I'll, I want to delve into that point, Cam, probably in my dislikes, so I probably won't dig into it much further, and we'll talk about it later on, if that's alright. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it sounds like none of us had a great time with the recruit, but let's just take a beat and focus on the things that we did like. I'll throw to you, Josh, there has to be something. Yeah, okay, so the, the things that I did like, Colin Farrell's performance. He does... And yes, okay, it was in that time where he was doing every single film and it was Colin Farrell overload, but he's an actor who acts very well with his eyes. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this, especially in his later career, but he does this doe-eyed expression throughout this film where he just looks like a deer in headlights and he doesn't give away much with his face, but there's something about his eyes that just light up the screen whenever he's on. Um, other things that I liked were Tradecraft. I think they, other than some of the fantastical elements, which I'm sure we'll get into, I think they did some really cool things with spy Tradecraft that it did feel relatively realistic at least, and I had a bit of fun with that. And as a fan of the, the Luc Besson Nikita film where it's all about, you know, training uh, you know, aspire an assassin at, at the farm or at whatever that is. I really enjoyed those scenes at the farm. I think the 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 interplay between the different characters and, you know, you had um, Gabriel Mack's character who was the, the alpha male Chad and um, they're all, you know, they're all sort of trying to one-up each other and you've got Al Pacino watching them on the cameras at all times. I really enjoyed that and I wish as you guys have already alluded to, I wish the rest of the film was more of that because that was fantastic. Um, so th those would probably be my highlights of the entire film. Well, I, I mean, let's unpack that a little bit. There's, there's a few there. So I watched a couple of documentaries, I think are on the DVD, but they're also on YouTube about the farm and the realism behind it. Like they had some CIA consultants telling them kind of what they did do for their trading. So there is some reality to it. And I think tradecraft is something we don't talk about enough on this show sometimes. We get lost in kind of plot and story and characterizations and acting and that sort of stuff. There's a lot of that in here. And it reminds me a lot of uh, Tony Scott's film Spy Game, hmm. which I think is a, more a superior film to this, where it's a lot about Robert Redford teaching Brad Pitt kind of how to be a spy. 
but I think it's done in Spy Game with a bit more panache. Whereas in this, I still like seeing the nuts and bolts though of the of it all being put together and like the the infiltration into the house sequence in the farm. I think that's really cool. And you you I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like this in a spy movie before. And even just like more stripped down things when Colin Farrell and Bridget Moynihan are sent out to like track a rabbit, basically, you know, someone who they want to surveil, like the way that they talk about how you kind of shift positions between the two people to always have the rabbit in your sight line, things like that. I'm like, give me more of that. That's so interesting. Mm. And, uh, you know, even the way that like he is you know, running surveillance on Bridget Moynihan when he thinks that she is going to <laughs> run off with this Ice-9 computer program. It's very lo-fi things, but I think they find a way to get it across in kind of like a slick Hollywood studio way. It doesn't feel like kind of the, like the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is a, you know, obviously great example of that sort of thing, but is not going to work on necessarily a mainstream movie audience. I think this movie is actually quite inviting for bringing people into real-world espionage without stooping to kind of like the the James Bond, larger-than-life stuff. I wish they would had more confidence in building thrills around the actual tactics versus like plot convolutions. Mm. Well, it's interesting to note there's a couple of deleted scenes that are also on YouTube. I'll see if I can put a link up at some point this week, but you can find them just uh, look on YouTube. And there's multiple sections from the farm that have been cut out. There's a whole like fake embassy section where al pacino's in like a foreign like dignitaries like military uniform and and colin farrell's basically dressed as james bond and he has to learn about (laughs) doing that sort of stuff like it's all quite fun and wonderful in its own little way and then we get into the nonsense afterwards unfortunately which sort of spoils it this movie should have just been about the farm i really do think that and i don't like to come into a review just being like this is the movie i think it should be but i think it's like they had such a strong concept up front that they could have done a little more with Hmm. do you think it's to do with like having three writers and it just getting sort of filtered down too much probably potentially um i i have a question for you guys what are they training to be as at the farm i i that was one thing that i i was a little baffled by are they training to be assassins are they training to be spooks like what are they actually training to be because you know official cover operatives as they talk about don't go around killing people and you know doing hand-to-hand combat that's the the knock guys the knock list and i'm sure we'll get into whether this film lands on the knock list or not and obviously in the film colin farrell becomes the knock um what were they training to be as (laughs) i was really really baffled by that well, I got the impression from uh, Bridget Moynihan's posting, because post, I assume she graduated. I, I got the impression, but she chose to work in the tech sector. So I, I think the training was kind of like multi-discipline. Uh, dis- and so you could then pick your speciality afterwards. Now, some could go into work as foreign agents uh, you know, in, in you know embassies and that sort of stuff. But most of them will probably just work as investigators out of the CIA office. But wait, did Bridget Moynihan actually choose cryptography? Because she has to be there for Al Pacino's plan to work. He was the one that paired up her with Colin Farrell early on. I think you're getting into like picking it apart. <laughs> and we're going we're, we're gonna to get there. We're going to get there. We're talking good things, Cameron. I mean more in the sense of like, you think she was training to take that job. But I don't know that she wanted that job. I'm very unclear. Because also... 
at the end of the movie. Well, they said that she did. They said she wanted to work in that. <sighs> they said she wanted something, or she was like training for something else, but wound up in cryptography. Like she chose cryptography instead. Nothing is as it seems. Her handlers put her into cryptography. <laughs> because at the end, where Colin Farrell, and I know this is nitpicking at this point, but like Colin Farrell, you know, is driving off with the other CIA guy, Superior, and he says, oh, you two should work together. Well, if he's a knock agent, what does that say about her? Is she now a knock agent? We're all knock agents. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just getting back to the tradecraft stuff, like I do think that was a strong element and actually fun. Like I wish the movie had a little more fun with that because we've talked about the Ipcris file, which also has kind of that stripped down approach to espionage. I see Scott tilting over in dismay when I bring up the Ipcris file. But I think like this was a fun way to get across a similar type of spy craft in a crowd-pleasing vehicle, kind of a anti-James Bond in some ways, even though they are referencing James Bond. Well, I think it's fun to see the nuts and bolts, as I said, like and, and how the sausage is made, if we're going to use another saying. Um, and I, I think that, but you put two charismatic leads, Al Pacino and Colin Farrell, in that situation, and you are drawn into that world. You want to hear more. And, and as Josh said, creating that sort of, camaraderie between Colin Farrell, Gabriel Macht, Bridget Moynihan, Mike Rielba, I believe his name is, you know, all these sort of potential agents uh, all bouncing. It feels like sort of high school for spies, which yeah. is, is interesting. And yeah, uh, that bit is, is really good. I think if I'm going to say a like that we haven't mentioned, um, it's, it's nice to see what the good guy version of Spectre Island is. <laughs> <laughs> no flamethrowers though. <laughs> No flamethrowers. I think it's, uh, the survival rate of the farm is much higher than the training for Spectre Island. I did laugh, though, when it shows like their day, where it's like, get up, Tai Chi, go running, blow up a car. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an average Tuesday here in England, I have to say. <laughs> I was like, okay. I, I get that they're compressing it into one brief montage, but that made me laugh. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I like that, too. Um, what about you, Cam? Something you liked? Honestly, can we just talk more about the farm? Because I genuinely think... <laughs> no, a number Cam, of we sequences. can't. Stop. <laughs> because I do think the strengths of the movie lie within that first hour. And there's so many sequences that are actually really engaging. I like the lie detector stuff. Mm -hmm. um, where they put Bridget Moynihan in a very uncomfortable position with Colin Farrell to see if she will break under this lie detector. I think bits like that work. Um, even like the really goofy... Maybe it's real. I don't know. Where they send the CIA agents into the bar, the aspiring CIA agents into the mm -hmm. bar, mm -hmm. and they have to like pick someone up and bring them outside, basically like a hookup. And Bridget Moynihan is there to prevent Colin Farrell from actually achieving his goal. I thought that was actually really funny stuff and engaging. And I wish they'd had more sequences like that. You could give me easily a two-hour movie of farm training scenarios, and I would walk out happy. I... Listeners will know that Cam and I have been to Las Vegas many times, and I've actually sent Cam into a bar to see if he can pick up a girl, and uh, <laughs> he uh, he did choose to accept his mission, but boy, did he fail. <laughs> Life prevented me. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, I completely agree. I think Josh and I will both say that those bits are amazing, and, and I would also point out the the capture and interrogation of Colin Farrell. There's a brief sort of where he's captured during a mission and it's, it's played as if he's been taken to this 
uh, you know, black site where he's being interrogated and night is day and day is night. He loses all sort of, he's getting tortured and everything. They're really laying it on thick here at the farm. Um, and I think that's played really well. And then the reveal is that actually the, the interrogation cell was actually in the farm complex the entire time and all the students were watching him as he broke down and confessed his feelings for Bridget Moynihan I think that's really cool and it's also compressed like I could see a film doing that sequence for 30 minutes and like you think of the Ipcris file you want to mention that it does the same thing in the Ipcris file back in the 60s where you know Michael Caine thinks he's been taken overseas but he's actually down in Ipswich somewhere or uh, in South London and he and he just gets back on a double-decker bus you know it, it's well done yeah, it's actually a little notable, too, that this movie comes out one year after Die Another Day, which showed James Bond going through torture in a very similar means. And, uh, yeah, just I guess something was in the air. I don't know. We see, with Die Another Day, though, like they invited the audience to participate in the torture by watching it. Sure, yes. In this, it was it was definitely yeah, alluded to. You know, you see them with the, the electrodes and the, the burning wire, and you hear him scream, but you never actually see it. Um, speaking James Bond, was this Colin Farrell's audition up against Daniel Craig? Ooh. Because this was right in that period where they would have been, you know, looking to transition. Yeah. And is this why Colin Farrell was not chosen to be the next Bond? Huh. You, you think of like, you think of that scene where he's being interrogated sitting on the floor and it's the same as basically when Bond's getting interrogated in Casino Royale. Like, it's the same thing. He's tied up and people are screaming at him. There's no hole in a chair, but still i can't remember it's been a little bit since we covered casino royale if he was one of the names that they were looking at like there was a few like henry cavill was like someone they really like martin campbell really fought for i don't remember if colin farrell was in that list of kind of names that were under strong consideration or just people who took meetings he wasn't i don't know whether he was a big consideration of eon but he was one of those big names in the tabloids where it was Colin Farrell to be the next James Bond, sort of like Aaron Taylor Johnson at the minute. He was that really up quite high. He'll be the next Bond after Brosnan. I think Colin Farrell like has an intensity that would have really worked. I don't know that he had it then as much. Like a little older Colin Farrell, I'm like home run. At this point, I'm not sure. He's a bit, it just feels a bit sort of fresh faced, kind of like Carl Urban did around this time where he just seems mm. very just seems young yeah um although i will i point out to that deleted scene again of him in the embassy dressed as james bond if you're looking for an audition tape of colin farrell in 2002 slash 2003 as james bond go and watch that mm, yeah i was gonna say one other thing i liked was that you know colin farrell and bridget moynihan have genuine chemistry like i think they click pretty well and so like i buy them you know in the pickup scene in the bar and just like the their relationship actually mostly works for me over the course of the movie, no matter how convoluted it gets, just because the two of them, they're remarkably beautiful for aspiring CIA agents. I don't know if that's the case in real life. I don't want to impugn any CIA agent for not being beautiful, but I was very curious like how that, say, bar pickup scene would play if the agent looked like, I don't know, like Paul Giamatti. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to see that movie badly. <laughs> I mean, they're meant to sort of blend in. So these beautiful people would definitely stick out in the crowd. If Colin Farrell walks into a, a, a pub here, he's getting everyone looking at him. Whereas if Paul Giamatti walks in, well, we all look like him, to be fair. Yeah, exactly. I'm not yeah, putting down Paul Giamatti either. It's just like he's very 
normal person looking. And so, like, the idea of sending a group of supermodels into a bar and being like, can you pull people out in, like, five minutes? It's like, okay. And even Colin Farrell said, actually, uh, you know how his character basically says he's been in prison and all this, you know, it's this very, like, I just need love, man. And um, he said that he actually used that technique in real life, so it worked. So they wrote it into the script. <laughs> I I buy it. I buy it. Although I I think the uh, the challenge goes to you now, Cam. You need to try and use that line. I don't think anyone would believe that I was in prison, like hardened in prison. No, I I certainly wouldn't. Yeah. No, no. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Yes, we are tackling the 2001 video game adaptation, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, with Angelina Jolie and Daniel Craig. Make sure to hit start on this one, folks. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Okay, I, I think it's time... We pivot over to the things we didn't like. We've spoken about it a lot. I think, Josh, lead us off. What's one thing you didn't like about this film? Oh, there's so many things, guys. There's so <laughs> many things I could get into. Well, join us next um... week for part two of The Recruit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a list of notes of just... Uh, I Convoluted, I think, is probably the word that I would use to describe this film. I, I think, as I said before, it would have worked as a series a lot better because there's so many twists and turns and you're supposed to believe that she's a traitor and that, that nothing's as it seems and you, you're trying to figure out who's being duplicitous and there's a lot of plot going on and it's at the expense of characterization, um, especially when you know, the twists start turning where Colin Farrell's questioning whether he's actually a knock and where... where uh, Al Pacino's character turns out to be the villain. The the turns are very quick. You don't see the the motivation behind anything unless it's basically said outright by Al Pacino's character. I am Blofeld. Yeah, you know, he goes on a, a massive rant as to why he's you know turned. <laughs> it, it's almost Bondian. Um, I, I think that would be probably my biggest dislike is it just it felt like it needed another half hour of characterization because it has the bones of a potentially really good film it just fell short for me it does a lot of like al pacino ranting which you're supposed to basically take as your answer as to what's been going on the whole time yeah and i found like what he was saying felt like it was rambling a lot of the time and not particularly uh coherent and then also, it's like this type of movie. You can confuse an audience for like a prolonged you know, period of time, but you've got to like hit them with something where they go, oh, and maybe even some flashbacks or something to like pay off 
what Pacino's plan has been A to B to C and how we like got there. Because even at the end of this movie, I'm like sitting there as I nitpicked a little bit earlier. It's like, I have no idea how all of this was formulated. And I think, I fear, the takeaway the filmmakers are basically giving the audience is, well, how could you understand? You don't have CIA intelligence. It's it's shocking that it can be this convoluted and yet feel completely underwritten. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Mm. Like it, it's like it's been overworked to the point of uselessness. Like I I I appreciate a a twist. We talk about spy movies every week. I like a twist. I don't like a thousand twists. I don't like the twists previously being made to feel completely redundant because nothing is as it seems. Sure. And you think of a movie like, say, Usual Suspects, which could easily use the nothing is as it seems as its tagline. When you get to the end of that movie, you are just like bowled back in your seat as to how they pulled off this magic trick. There's a moment early in the movie where Al Pacino does this trick with like a newspaper where he rips it up Mm -hmm. and then makes it whole. And I'm like, first first off, I just want to watch a movie about Al Pacino doing close-up magic. That would be a very entertaining two hours for me. Uh, But like, they're basically saying that like, you can pull off these tricks, but... It's not satisfying to really have the audience confused and then not give the actual, what was the actual solution to Mm. the trick? Like, how did he do this? And I I think the MacGuffin as well, just, and and (laughs) they, they, they put the, the, what it was, ice, ice nine or whatever they called it as a MacGuffin in there as the thing that Bridget Moynihan's character was trying to steal. And you didn't really care about it and it was so confusing as to what the hell it was anyway and i'm sure that was probably part of the creation of the film but i'm sitting there going what is ice nine and then they're talking about this bizarre book that colin farrell ends up reading in the cafe down the track um the just the the whole MacGuffin. he's actually reading a different book yeah it, it was i wasn't sure if it was the same one um but it was by the same author, yeah. Same author. Same author. It's both Sir Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut, but it's, yeah, different book. Yeah, Al Pacino references Cat's Cradle, I believe, and then he's mm. reading Slaughterhouse Five. And it's like, oh, okay, that's an interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, yeah, it, it just felt like they, they had this incredible MacGuffin that they were trying to say was, you know, it could destroy the world. And did I really care about it? Not really. And I guess that's probably the point of the film it's not mission impossible they're not chasing the macguffin but it just felt like a redundant plot point like i'm sure they could have just skipped that entire bit of plot and had bridget moynihan just stealing data and it would have come off the same selling secrets oh thank you yeah there we go (laughs) (laughs) i had a question for you both about the ice nine program did you understand what was going on at the end where Colin Farrell was trying to connect Spartacus to Ice-9? Uh, so the way I saw it was so Spartacus, the program that he developed when he was a, a genius MIT grad, was basically, it was a broadcast system. Yeah. So he wasn't necessarily connecting it to Ice-9. What he was doing at the end was he was trying to connect Spartacus to the CIA's network so that they could see Al Pacino's big turn and listen in on Al Pacino's big speech as to why he was the big bad. But of course it didn't work, so he had to trick Al Pacino and nothing was as it seemed. Um, That was the way I saw that at least, was he was trying to broadcast Al Pacino's 
turn. That's the way I saw it previously, but when I was actually paying attention to the code he was writing, he kept writing Ice-9 Spartacus in the code. Oh. But Cam, nothing is as it seems. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. And <laughs> I, I just wrote down, I wrote down Chekhov's app. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I, I don't think it did anything other than to sort of connect itself to the beginning. I don't know. I, I watched that scene intently the second time round with the upload and like struggling to connect to the CIA. I'm not sure what he was trying to do. I think Josh's interpretation was as, as correct as, it, as it's going to be. Hmm. Uh, we, I mean, we've spoken to Roger already. I don't think we asked him about Ice-9. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Rog, tell me about this Ice-9, mate. Can you explain it to me? No. Um, I... I just didn't like the Ice Nine as a concept. I feel like it was added in unnecessarily. I think he should have been just selling secrets, as I said. It was very much the MacGuffin or the Trans Mooker, as I sometimes like to say, if we're referencing Spy Kids too. It felt a little too big because this is a movie that's trying to do kind of a stripped down, like this is what it's like to join the CIA, and they're never saying things like about saving the world and whatever. And this technology seems like so major that it doesn't make as much sense. I think, like, when they set up that, you know, Bridget Moynihan's character, Layla, could be a sleeper agent, why isn't it just, like, selling some sort of secrets that would matter? Like, make it, you know, kind of say it's whatever, relates to Russia or something, like some other country, and that's it. Like, that's all you need. You don't need all this stuff about Ice-9. Yeah, like agent locations in the Middle East. Sure. Boom. You've just written it. Yeah, tie it back to the Knock characters. She's selling off the names of Knock agents. There you go. Boom. Because they also say early on, I believe, that Layla is a sleeper agent who wants information about the farm. Yes. 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 So why not tie it to the farm or something? I'll go back to overworked. <laughs> it's very confusing. Yeah, too too many cooks uh, in that one, unfortunately. I'm just going to point out... Um, I'm going to call back to what Josh said earlier because you guys know how I don't like Dutch angles and we're connecting back to the Ipcris file once again. Uh-oh. This film loves its Dutch angles. Good golly. It's like the, the DP was just, you know, had one leg shorter than the other. Well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess it was a decision. They made a decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That they chose something. Yeah, it was e- even in scenes where Dutch angles weren't necessary. Like you look at a film, like I'll go back to Mission Impossible, the first Mission Impossible, where he's getting interrogated by Kittredge in the uh, the restaurant towards the beginning of the film, and it goes on those really hard Dutch angles because it's trying to throw you as an audience member off and put you in Tom Cruise's seat as his whole world's on a tilt. Whereas this entire film. Felt like a Dutch angle. It, it didn't have any motivation behind the camera. And you look at the timeline of when this movie comes out. One year earlier, The Born Identity has come out. And Doug Liman has kind of rewritten the language of kind of the modern spy movie. And that'll be obviously evolving once you get to The Born sequels. But this one kind of feels like, in a way, it reminded me of The Fugitive. Not so much with Dutch angles, but in terms of like the type of filmmaking it was embracing, which is a little more of an old school thriller model. And it doesn't feel like it was really pushing anything forward in 2003. As I said before, it's a film that wouldn't get made today. Yeah. I feel like it's it's a spy film made for 
like general audiences, but it's trying to be one of those cold and dark, you know, plotty Jean Le Carre type spy stories for a mass audience, you know, four quadrant film, or maybe not the kids, but the other three quadrants they can have. Uh, but I, I think it's tried to do too many things at once, and that's why it struggles in the second half because obviously it changes to a chase film. I think there's also something else important, actually, in terms of like speaking to that mainstream audience. And as we said, this movie actually did okay at the box office. So, you know, but the action in the movie and sort of the thrills are pretty subdued. And I think if they were maybe a little more frequent or at least a little more noteworthy, uh, that would do a better job at grabbing people because we have not talked at all about like the car chase or the pursuit through the train station. These are not particularly memorable action sequences. We talk about the the sequences at the farm and that house sequence where they're infiltrating the house. I think the action in in that where it was all you know staged by the CIA to a point, I found that action far more exciting than the the real world action that was supposed to be exciting, like that train that chase on the train tracks or the car chase. Uh, I think yeah, they they really did a good job of selling the big action in the the training, but undercooked it when it came to the real world which hey maybe that's what real spy works like it's all undercooked <laughs> i i would just say i got a flashback to the 90s version of the jackal when the train sequence was happening which is not a film you should be evoking less awkward uh effects though true <laughs> true now i i want to address something i disliked which we've kind of talked about but i want to dig into a particular part of it and that is the fact that Nothing is as it seems. Now, this is a cheat in storytelling. It basically means, ah, don't worry about that because X. The problem with doing that every five minutes in this film is it just completely takes the legs out of every consequence. You take of Colin Farrell shoots and allegedly kills Gabriel Mack's character, Zack, in the train station sequence that we were just mentioning. Now, two scenes later, Al Pacino is telling him, ah, it's squibs. You're firing blanks. We're going to see him at the bar in 30 minutes and boy, we'll have a jolly good laugh about it. And so you go, oh, all right, fine. So what was the point in worrying about that? And then obviously you do find out that maybe he may have died, although you never really get that <laughs> confirmed. Um, no, you don't. And so it just keeps undercutting itself by saying nothing is as it seems. And they're trying to be smart. The writers are going, ah, nothing is as it seems. Yeah, well, let's go get lunch, guys. Uh, it, but it isn't smart storytelling. You can play that card a couple of times. But like Cam says, you have to do a massive reveal that sort of pays off and nods back to where it came from. And look at all these little clues we left. It doesn't do any of that. There's no clues that Al Pacino is a bad guy until basically he goes full heel right at the end. And there's no relationship in the movie you can really uh, get a clear sense of because the Moynihan-Colin Farrell relationship is interesting. I think it kind of pulls you in in that first hour. But then it gets so like convoluted over the course of that second hour that I don't really know where they stand by the end of the movie. And, uh, and then the Al Pacino-Colin Farrell thing, God knows. <laughs> God knows. Daddy issues is the Colin Farrell-Al Pacino oh, yeah. relationship. And uh, we haven't mentioned... The daddy issues, yeah. which is another like baked in story in this of, of, of Colin Farrell not knowing what his dad did. Turns out his dad was a bit of a spook, but we never really get any resolution on that particularly. Uh, and Al Pacino allegedly knows some stuff about him, but doesn't know too much and doesn't share anything. That doesn't get resolved. No. 
What was the deal with the the website? There was the edwardclaytonmissing.com. Was that made by the son, the family? <laughs> Did the CIA make that? Like It was on GeoCities. <laughs> if he was a CIA agent. It's got the cursor that like chases itself. Oh. What's the MySpace song playing on that on that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, they they go to a bar that Colin Farrell's working at and it's playing new metal oh. because it's 2003. So there it there is new metal playing on this uh, a, a Clayton website. Uh, I'm guessing it's probably well, 2003. Who's popular in new metal at this time? Uh, 2003. That's like kind of the Linkin Park kind of period. Mm, what's a Daddy Issues Linkin Park song? I don't know my Linkin Park well enough, unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe some Metallica. It's got that. That's oh, Saint Anger. That's the year of Saint Anger. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That horrible snare drum. Right, we're going. Set anger is on the uh, the James Clayton website. Yeah, well, I mean, they do have a little bit of payoff at the very end of the movie where Colin Farrell's being driven away and the CIA superior says, it's in your blood. Sort of confirming that his father was a CIA agent. Uh, but that that's about all there is. To well, does it day. confirm? Yeah, I think it does. It fades to white on the 1990... 1990- uh, star on the memorial wall when his dad died in 1990, supposedly. Oh, is that what that was? Yeah. That's what it is, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So, yes, it is confirmed he was an agent. Right, okay. Sorry, I, I didn't get that reference because the name's different. It's not Clayton. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, okay. Subtext. I like it. Uh, any other dislikes, folks? I'll throw it out to a, a general shout-out. I mean, for me, my primary one is the storytelling, which we've talked about. But I will say, like, when you look at No Way Out, which is a superior, I think, you know, spy thriller Mm -hmm. to this one in pretty much every way. But you look at how he utilized the space of the Pentagon, yeah, Roger Donaldson did in that movie, and how incredibly effective it was, how you understood sort of the personalities of all the people in the office and the neighboring sort of areas of of the Pentagon in that movie. Um, I think of George Zunza uh, in that movie as like the yep. um, guy who was helping develop the photos, for example. And then I look at like what this movie does with like its CIA locations, and you just don't have that sort of sense of like mastery of kind of communicating to the audience the kind of nooks and crannies of the place. Like I would have loved a little more detail in terms of the CIA office, other than Colin Farrell posing as like I don't know a dude walking records around and you know ducking into offices and using computers, like. I think that could have been interesting and maybe made the movie feel a little more novel and interesting as opposed to that second hour, which feels very generic. Well, we do know that they like to go out to the local bar to have a margarita and pick up uh, conservative girls. That is true. Yes, that is the thing. Do they make their margaritas in a paper shredder? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent question, Scott. I think the geography of the place was a bit all over the shop, as you alluded to. Um, It it's such a trope in CIA films, isn't it? Where you have to see the logo on the floor of the building and you have to see the stars mm. on the wall. Like, you know you're at Langley when you see those two things. I guess it was that that was the real CIA lobby, right? Like, they probably got permission to shoot the lobby and nothing else? Maybe. I think it's actually staged because... Is it? There's a, in the behind-the-scenes stuff I watched on YouTube, you do see it and it looks different. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Maybe it's lit differently. I don't know whether that changes stuff, but it looked different to me. Okay. Yeah, because I knew they did some Washington locations, but I wasn't sure if that was one of them. I know they did the, like, the memorial is real, but yeah. When when Al Pacino's character is giving Colin Farrell his brief as the knock, 
Um, I, I did, I actually liked this. They had them sitting on a bench in front of the Iwo Jima statue. And if you know the story behind the, the flag raising in Iwo Jima, that was completely falsified for the press to make it, you know, look like the Americans were conquerors when in actual fact, nothing was as it seems. So I had that in the back of my head the whole time that, you know, this, this briefing's going in, on in front of something that wasn't as it seemed. I, I, I liked that. Yeah, that is a nice little touch, actually, that I never made that connection. Uh, so, yeah, like, there's there's interesting things in this movie. Like, that's the thing, I think, that makes this conversation interesting is we're often frustrated by this movie because there's strong elements here, for sure. I think if this, this film, and that we're all calling for it, and it's not happened because this film was made 20 years ago, uh, a, a full farm film, then I think we would be talking a very different chat about this film, and it would be very much uh, laden with praise. Sure. Even if they'd done a two-hour farm movie and it didn't quite stick the landing, like we walked out being like, well, that wasn't great, we'd still be like, that was a really interesting CIA spy film that we have nothing else like on the catalog. Now I want to see a film of Al Pacino and Colin Farrell as farmers. <laughs> <laughs> it can still happen. So there's a, there's a TV series, I'm not sure if you guys have seen it, it finished a couple of years ago now, called Quantico, which is basically about FBI recruits. And I think that did a better version of the CIA, well, in their case, FBI trainees being recruited and learning the trade. And then there's, you know, a, a threat to the agency from within Quantico. I think that did that better. And I would have loved to have seen it fleshed out a little bit more like that series did. Well, I think before we tackle the knock list question, let's go to any final notes that we have. I have a couple of little bits, little tidbits. Josh, have you got anything hanging about? Overall, as I said, I think I really... No, I didn't really enjoy my time with the film. I, <laughs> I had a time with the film. Would I watch it again? No. But you're not wasting your time watching it as well. If you're putting it on in the background and you're, you know, you're having dinner, it's, a, it's an enjoyable time. It's not going to set the world on fire, but it's an okay spy thriller. And I'm okay with that because I love, I love spy films. And I'd rather watch that any day than Spy Kids 4D. Uh, well, we can all agree true. on that. We can all agree yeah, on that. Yeah, that. that's um, very true. Very yep. true. Uh, I think for final notes for me, I'm just going to shout out. There's two things. Firstly, this is actually our first official mention of Knock in a film. Obviously, we uh, lovingly stole it from Mission Impossible, but we haven't spoken about Mission Impossible yet on the show. So I guess Knock is official canon in the Spy Hards podcast pantheon. Sure. Sure. Uh, and Al Pacino does say at one point, the first rule is don't get caught. So my question for you all is, what's the second rule? Everything's a training exercise. Yeah. That's, uh, that's like the good but not funny answer. Oh no! <laughs> uh. Sorry, I'm I'm Australian, but I'm not the funny Australian. Maybe with the other rule, be nothing is what it seems. Oh yeah. Oh, that's actually yeah. yeah actually, you guys have both come in with like straight serious answers, and I was going for like gaffes. So I guess uh, yeah, one of those. <laughs> go on, go on with your gaffes. <laughs> we'll, we'll humor you. I. I've got nothing now. I feel like I feel like it's all been taken from me. I don't want to give you my answer. Move on. Cam, what have you got? I've got a few little notes that kind of made me laugh. Um, there was some wardrobe stuff. I thought Colin Farrell in two scenes. 
Uh, I thought the white unbuttoned shirt with the shark tooth necklace was a real 2003 look. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not the only one that noticed that. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Also, uh, following the train sequence where he tries to go incognito, you could tell this movie was shot in Canada where he's wearing like the red flannel and the uh, like the the flap hat, the trapper hat that comes down over his ears. I was like, oh man, this is such a movie shot in Canada. <laughs> are you uh, are you jealous of his white shirt with the shark tooth necklace? No, I am not. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> I'm jealous of the body underneath, but not the dress. How many MIT students look like that? Not many, if any. I I'm I'm not going to judge MIT. I'm sure it's full of lovely. Lovely, in-shape men and women. Probably, probably. You ruined my joke, Cam. I'm going to ruin yours. <laughs> I've got a few other uh, notes that made me laugh. Uh, at one point, Colin Farrell's getting drunk and watching The Man Show. That is a real dark place to be. <laughs> what, what was that he was watching? What was that reference? It was a show back in the day with Adam Carolla and Jimmy Kimmel, where it was kind of like men behaving badly and that's the fun yeah like they would have women jumping on trampolines in every episode and things like that oh boy it was a weird sketch show it wasn't quite jackass but it was yeah it was debauchery and mid-2000s mtv tv at its worst like this film you would probably never get a show like that made ever again no no uh i had a couple other things at one point during the poker game Colin Farrell refers to his classmate as Sonny Crockett, who of course was the lead character on Miami Vice, and Colin Farrell would play Sonny Crockett in a few more years in the movie Miami Vice, directed by Michael Mann. Hmm. Okay, a little bit of foreshadowing there. Yeah, uh, we had a cameo as well. Not so much a cameo, but Chris Owens, a working Canadian actor, appeared in this movie. Uh, he was the one explaining the bugs, and he of course played Spender on X-Files for multiple seasons. That was fun for me to see. And lastly, at one point, Colin Farrell was saying to Bridget Moynihan, let's go do touristy things. Let's go to the Smithsonian and see John Dillinger's penis. To which I was like, eh? Is that a thing? So I looked it up on Snopes.com. No, that is not true. It's entirely a rumor. So either the CIA knows more than uh, everyone else about these such such things, or the movie was just assuming this urban legend was true. Who, for those who don't know, and I'm guessing Mm. British and Europeans, is John Dillinger. Sure. He was a um, bank robber during the Depression. They made a movie actually called Public Enemies, directed by Michael Mann, uh, with Johnny Depp as John Dillinger. And he was sort of became this like folk hero. Um, yeah. Okay. And if we're talking about cameos, it's also uh, for the one or two Star Trek Discovery fans that exist in the universe that are listening to this podcast. It does also star one Kenneth Mitchell in a, a very, a very young uh, Kenneth Mitchell in a role as one of the MIT students. He, of course, went on to play several characters in Discovery, most notably uh, the Klingon Cole. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Less said about that show, the better. <laughs> but speaking of less said about something, the better, let's get to the knock list. It is time, gentlemen. Josh, you've boldly gone onto our podcast. Thank you for joining us, sir. Your question goes to you Is the recruit making the knock list would i be subverting expectation if i said yes (laughs) (laughs) uh no no it's a a hard and fast no for me 
Yeah, I think I think we've all maybe telegraphed our opinions on this one. It's uh, but yeah, so it's a no from you. That makes complete sense. Uh, Cam, what about yourself? Yeah, it's a no for me as well. We were like kind of divided, or not so much divided, but like it was difficult for us, I think, to come to a consensus on No Way Out because we actually really liked that movie, the other Donaldson spy thriller we've tackled. Mm-hmm. No Way Out is much better than this movie. That one didn't quite make the knock list, although it's one that I have enjoyed revisiting since. Uh, I don't think I'll be revisiting The Recruit. It's not as good as No Way Out, so it does not belong on the knock list. I understand. So that's two no's, and therefore my vote's pointless, uh, which is always my favorite place to be. So I'm going to say yes, just because we get to see Al Pacino and Colin Farrell in a bar with new metal playing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's Widemouth Mason playing, which is a Canadian band. Well, I- of course, a Canadian would make that reference. I appreciate your uh, geographical and national insight there, Cam. You're welcome. And Widemouth Mason, we're not like a huge band in Canada. It's a little obscure, actually. Who's the biggest Canadian new metal band? Of that era? Mm, new metal? I don't know that we had a lot of new metal, but I think of like alternative rock that was very popular at that point, which is kind of what Widemouth Mason are. Uh, I would say like Matthew Goodband or Moist would be bigger. I don't know either of them. So that works. Uh, perfect. There you go. Uh, of course, I'm saying no to this film. It's not going to make the knock list. I think there's a good nugget of an idea inside of this film, but it's not fully fleshed out and it kind of abandons it to do other things. I think the writers got bored and thought, hey, let's go play spies. But that's a shame. But there is still stuff to enjoy. Uh, it's not making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Now, I would say it's not a knock list film, but there's some stuff in there that's worth watching. Yeah, I agree. Well, Josh, thank you once again for coming on the show. It's been a blast having you aboard for the first time. I'm sure first of many. There's many more spy films to talk about. But where can people find you online? Gentlemen, just want to say a massive thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, as I said to you offline, you guys are doing incredible things at the minute. Some of the guests that you've had on the show have been absolutely sublime. Thoroughly enjoyed your interview with Colin Salmon uh very recently but where people can find me uh on instagram you can follow the selling secrets podcast at selling secrets pod or if you'd like to follow me and all of my james bond tragedy <laughs> uh it's just at 007 oz which is at 007 a u s awesome yeah we'll have links to all of your social media in the show notes below as well so people can hunt you down i'm sure you'll be tagged in many of things we're posting throughout the week for this film so they can all come find you on there and i'd recommend checking out selling secrets obviously josh has shared a couple of episodes that he's uh had already that worth checking out he didn't mention our appearance for some reason <laughs> well we asked for highlights <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview with you guys as well that was a uh, very good fun i i will say your our guest spot on your show did provide us with that uh, that nightmare fuel altered version of the Spy Hard poster with Cam and I as uh, the two leads. You're welcome. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, that was amazing. Which I'm sure I'll repurpose this week, so definitely worth it. But yeah, Josh, it's been a blast having you on. Everyone go check out Selling Secrets, and uh, yeah, we'll see you real soon. Thanks, guys. Well, Cam, the recruit didn't quite recruit us, so the question goes to you. What are we doing next week? Yes, we are celebrating Valentine's Day. And what better way to celebrate Valentine's Day than with the 2018 romantic comedy The Spy Who Dumped Me, starring Mila Kunis and Kate McKinnon. I do not know anything 
about this film apart from its leads so i'm fascinated to see where it goes but all you lovebirds out there just go buy yourself a nice bottle of champers get yourself a mani pedi and come and listen to us next week as we tackle the spy who dumped me now if you liked what you heard on the show please consider giving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast and if you haven't hit subscribe yet we'd really appreciate it if you did and if you don't follow us already discreetly of course on social media you can find us at spyhards that's s-p-y-h a-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But until next week listeners, I do have a question for you but I need you to answer it very quickly. Would you rather ride on a train, dance in the rain or feel no pain? (laughs) 